0: Hi. Hi Ian. Hi Maya. Seems to be the second. Oh, it is the second one. Um two. We're on a roll. Um
1: the big two.
0: Yeah, this is Finding Your Marbles. That is the name we gave it. So how are you?
1: I'm a little chilly right now. You you know how it is. In those cold New Jersey winters. How how are you, Maya?
0: Oh, I'm um it's been a week, but it's it's okay. It's okay because we have a new week. It, there's always another. Yeah, we um, sure do. Yes, I'm going to break the fourth wall and say thank you to um, people that listened to the last episode. I think you wanted to specifically thank someone.
1: I wanted to thank uh, a certain trombone player, Natalie. <laughs> Thank you, Natalie. You keep on, you keep on rocking in the free world. Do 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 you,
0: do. You you watch Nard Yeah. Okay. 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 Um. So, I know you like reading. What have you been reading lately?
1: Like, aside from the thing?
0: Huh?
1: <laughs> or oh, uh, I've been reading uh, Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling. <laughs> Fear B- and the...
0: Trembling, what's that?
1: It's a book.
0: Coincidentally, I've also been reading Fear and
1: Trembling. Oh my God, what a coincidence. It's I know. almost like we planned this. Uh, I picked out a few books in the vein of the existentialist philosophy that we're going to read for the next few, I guess you'd phrase it as Ian led podcasts. And the first one on the list was Fear and Trembling by Soren Kierkegaard a Danish philosopher, you know, pretty cool place. If I do say so myself, never been there, hope to visit soon. Uh, and basically a little background about Soren Kierkegaard, uh, is he was born in 1813. I think he was the youngest, uh, in his family. And well, baby he was, he was one of the only children of his family to survive infancy, which is, which is pretty neat, I guess. Uh,
0: he had the good genes
1: he did have the good gene (laughs) it was him and I think his older brother they outlived all the other siblings and so basically the books that Kierkegaard is most well known for is Fear and Trembling which is what we're going to be discussing today, The Sickness Unto Death, uh, Either Or and The Concept of Anxiety and a lot of these books kind of laid the foundation for what existential existentialism would become in like the twentieth century with people like Camus and Sartre. Uh so he's kinda like a proto-existentialist. Uh a pretty important thing that happened in his adult life was he had a he was engaged to this girl, Regine Olsen, and he broke off the wedding before they they could uh get married because he thought that if they were to get married, the love that they had would to fade. So he kinda in a way, oh. and you'll get this reference later, he resigned his love to the infinite. Mm. Uh, and then he passed away in the year of our Lord, 1855, from uh, like ex- this back injury that he got from when he was a child. He like fell out of a tree and he had a really deformed back and it was like excruciatingly painful. And then he died and at his funeral, he was buried by the uh, state church of Denmark and his cousin like he broke into the the uh, funeral and he said, "Hey, he he wouldn't have wanted to have been buried by you," and then <laughs> got arrested for that. Oh, so that's a little bit of of the history of Soren Kierkegaard, the father um, of existentialism.
0: Yeah, I read into his religious background that he was um, a Lutheran says that it combines the emphasis on biblical doctrine with the reformed emphasis on individual piety.
1: He didn't like like the church, especially of Denmark. He saw it as like corrupt. Mm. You know, like more of like a symbol of power rather than religious.
0: I don't blame him. <laughs> I like. I was I was confused because um, there was a lot of this idea of like you and me, we go to the church on Sunday and look at this big guy, what he says. And I was thinking, okay, so like, obviously he didn't say it like that, but um, it seemed as though he was practicing a religion of some sort. And I didn't know if that was more societal or like personal. And...
1: It was definitely more, like he was very religious. I mean, you can obviously tell considering like the content of the book.
0: And the allusions to the bible yeah
1: it's like the whole book is an examination of uh the story of abraham and isaac and what is it genesis one thing that he said when i was researching him is that he kind of he wasn't writing for himself like he was writing for god hmm. it's not like he's just this guy who's like i'm i'm yeah i'm spiritual but not religious like he was he was a really religious guy
0: yeah exactly i wasn't sure who the audience was <laughs> Um, so I was, I was thinking maybe it was to like warn his brothers, his, his fellow religious people, like, Hey, don't believe everything you read. Don't believe everything you hear.
1: I mean, doesn't he kind of say who the audience is in like the, the preface sort of Hmm. where he kind of goes like, uh, uh, people try to go beyond faith. They think that it's something that you instantly have and he's trying to like tell i guess the society which he grew grew up in and lived in that they don't have faith yet they think they do but they haven't really achieved it
0: yeah that's what i was thinking i was i wasn't sure if it was more of um like to educate everyone or to to warn them um but yeah i pulled out the quote thinking means to go beyond faith yeah basically you need more proof.
1: I have a, one of the quotes that I highlighted is, uh, even though one were capable of converting the whole content of faith into the form of a concept, it does not follow that one has adequately conceived faith and understand how got, how one got into it or how it got into one.
0: Mm.
1: So I, I think he's, he's putting kind of like a warning that, you know, faith is meant to be faith. You can't really prove it. And to go beyond that is negating the purpose of faith. In
0: a sense. Okay. I found it like, I don't know. I couldn't tell if he was critiquing. I just didn't know. Because I was thinking in this in like 1800s, in that society, there's probably more religious people than non-religious people. So I just was unsure. When he started to um, praise more of Abraham's work than condemn, I was like, okay, he is very true to um the religion it says he follows the fact that he um believes more in the pure form of um his religion says rather than like the people that that paint it and and preach it
1: it seems like he it it definitely seems like he uh has a more personal idea of religion than like a communal one that being religious is a very solitary act Whereas things like the church are inherently communal. So that's why he kind of disagrees with it.
0: Hmm. I see. He talks a lot about the universal. Now, is that different than now when people say, I believe in the universe? Would you say those two are different?
1: The universe as in like like a more spiritual sense of the word or a more scientific sense of the word?
0: Not, Not in the scientific way um for example some people believe that god and quote unquote the universe um are interchangeable they're synonymous
1: i and you're asking if i believe believe that god and the universe are synonymous
0: first that and then also how does that differ from the universal
1: i do not think god is the universe i have i am of more uh agnostic mm. than religious or spiritual one
0: so is there a universe to you uh
1: there's a scientific universe
0: and that is all that exists to you okay does a god exist to you
1: uh i don't i don't, I don't personally believe in like at least any religion that I've read about or heard about, any concept of God that they have, uh, one 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 idea that I kind of liked is like like Einstein's, which is kind of like that God is like nature in itself. It's just the pure beauty of the world, not like that. There's a big man in the sky with a beard and he's an absolute hunk with muscles everywhere. <laughs> I, that's I don't believe in that. Like, <laughs> But I don't okay. think I don't think by universal he means he means it in like a spiritual sense. Like he he talks about uh, the ethical being the universal, and I think for him the ethical is uh, it's like a way one conducts themselves in life. Mm. And I think by ethic by universal, at least in the instance in this book, he's talking more about like uh, like the society, like the universal society that humans live in kind of hey. not like a spiritual sense
0: as in u- universal does he mean um just like any construct that like everyone can agree on
1: i think so yeah i i think it's i think it's mainly like uh because he also talks about the aesthetic and the aesthetic i think is more individual and the ethical is more communal so i think mm-hmm. that that's like what makes it universal if that if that makes any sense if you're okay. picking up what i'm putting down
0: to make this all about me, because why not? Oh, On the other Go hand, right I am quite the opposite. I think I, I believe in a God. Now, I have a question, actually. So you don't necessarily believe that there's a singular God. Um, would you be open to um, like polytheism? To you, is there, is there such thing as multiple gods?
1: To me, I just don't really think that there's anything like a god. Okay. I I think if if there's anything comparable, it's just this, like, I don't think there's any personification of a deity that Mm. has human characteristics or, like, physical characteristics. I think if there is one. Which I don't really think there is it'd be something more ethereal, and it's not like I'm like an atheist, like I'm like I, I don't like god if you if you're if you're a christian you're you're a doodoo head like i'd I'd like to believe in God, but i just I just don't think that he exists like I think it's a good and very comforting concept, but yeah. it's just not one that in my experience i buy buy into
0: okay. I'm just curious. But I won't like trash um,
1: anybody if they do. Like, I want to be clear about that. I respect all religions.
0: Yeah, I just, I'm curious if you um, got to know more about other religions and other forms of religion. And, but if you were to um, expand on that, I wonder if you would connect with anything other than like the very Christian dominant. Religions you might be familiar. with
1: I also grew up Catholic, so that might be be why I'm a, a little bit more against Christianity. I did not have a good time, I must say.
0: <sighs>
1: and I, I, I could tell the story about the Catholic summer camp I went to, but we'll save that for another day.
0: Okay, yeah, give give the listeners something to look forward to. <laughs> <laughs> so I am Christian. I believe in a God. I am. Mm, so the whole universe, the universe being synonymous to God, um, I'm not sure about that. I don't know enough to draw a conclusion. So um, I'm providing that Christian perspective for any of you wondering.
1: And I'm <laughs> providing the edgy, edgy atheist side. Oh,
0: okay. okay.
1: That was sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so should, we, should we hop into the book, I guess, a, a little bit more? Why not? All right. So, do you have any any? What were your thoughts on the book? Like, do you like it? You like Kierkegaard? You, you big Kierkegaard head? See,
0: I know you. You were like, I think you'll like this. I'm just, I'm curious, like, what about it? You thought I would really enjoy.
1: Uh, so, so we've had like a few like philosophical discussions. So I always kind of got the sense that you you liked thinking deeply about certain things, and I knew, <laughs> I, and I knew that uh, fear and trembling was uh it was like a rumination on, you know, the Abraham and Isaac story of Abraham right. going to sacrifice Isaac. And it's, it's like a different perspective, you know, something that actually makes you think, and it's some, and it's religious too. So it's not like, uh, so it's, it's not like it's questioning your faith, but it's questioning, I guess, kind of your, uh, comfort level, I guess, with right. the, at least the Abraham Isaac story.
0: Yeah, I actually, so I don't, I haven't decided yet. Maybe by the end, I'll figure out if I liked it or not. But um, my mother is like my best friend. When we were, when I was telling her about the book, um, she was saying, fear and trembling. Well, that's, um, that is a quote from Philippians. Um, So it's like a nod to that. So I actually, I actually reached out to an English teacher of mine and I was like, Fear and trembling. Do you know anything about this? Um, and the teacher didn't hadn't read Fear and Trembling, but they explained the allusion in the title. I think pretty nicely. Um, the scriptural reference to which Kierkegaard refers is Philippians two twelve. Paul discussing how the faithful at Philippi must continually work at being people of Christ. Faith, Paul implies, is not a passive existence. It is a continual process of renewal and active love for God and the neighbor. So, that's the person I was speaking to. That was their summary of that. Um, Fear and trembling, the title. Just from the start, I was like, okay, this is very... It has a lot to do with um, religion. So, I was a little anxious because I was unsure um, whether or not this was going to be like a harsh critique or um, a praise of religion. I didn't know. but it was um, a good mix and I I enjoyed how it made me kind of go back and analyze with more depth um, things I had read before. Because I'm quite familiar with Abraham and Isaac's story, but <laughs> within, like, the um, problem one and two, like, I was like, wait a second. What? <laughs> okay, I found the, the quote. Okay. So, this is Philippians 2.12. Um, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but more, much more in my absence, work out of your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So this is um, a letter to church people. Um, Basically, you have a a due diligence to do. And this is something that you should abide by.
1: Yeah, I I definitely think that's something we were talking about a little bit earlier, where it's his purpose for writing is because people, I guess, just assume, at least when it was written, that they have faith that that they're that they don't really need to do anything to participate in their religion whereas i think kierkegaard one of his main points is that it's not as easy as people make it out to be and people kind of just enjoy it on the surface level in a sense do
0: mm.
1: you remember the part i think it's in the uh preliminary uh expectoration where he talks mm-hmm. about uh a priest how people don't like understand the real story because they replace Isaac with the best. And then I, the preacher says, Isaac is the best. And a man goes home and goes, Oh, if I, if I kill my my best, which is my son, then God will love me. And then the pra- pastor says like, Oh, you're completely misunderstanding the story. That's not what it means at all. And then uh, the, the, the guy was like, Oh, I would have killed my son goes, but that's basically what you were preaching that to kill your best to, for God is, a sign of belief is a sign of ultimate faith which you know isn't really why abraham had to sacrifice isaac you know right it's that people kind of just they don't it's not that they don't get it it's just that they don't think deeply about it which i think he says somewhere
0: so he's like um almost challenging the foundation of of what the people around him are believing yeah
1: another thing that uh, i really like about fear and trembling like first of all like even though i'm not that much of a religious person i really enjoyed reading it because for one i feel like the way he writes is very very poetic like i really like the way he writes it's very like palpable imagery i guess yes
0: i i said it was like very engaging
1: yeah yeah and i think one of the even though it's at the beginning, I think my favorite part of the whole book is the part where he gives the different interpretations of how the the story of Abraham and Isaac go. Yes. Where uh, there's uh, one where Abraham loses his faith because God would demand something like this and he was willing to do it. There's one where Isaac loses his faith. And... Uh,
0: this is a section of the Roman numerals, right?
1: Yeah, at the very beginning. Yeah. Uh, and. When when I when I went to the aforementioned Catholic summer camp, we had to read the first part of Fear and Trembling, but we also had to read the Book of Genesis. And I remember when reading the Book of Genesis, I was oh, like,
0: I'm "So sorry, yeah, so dry." <laughs> yeah, I was
1: like, "This is kind of really badly written from a literary point of view because it's like one of the main things that, like, when Cain kills Abel, it's just like, and then Cain slew Abel, and God punished him, and then it like moves on right away, and it's like." Yes what mm-hmm. like
0: I feel like Kier- Kierkegaard um had a little bit of fun with this or he was like well since you didn't give me any context guess we're gonna write some we're gonna fictionalize this um so I thought it was kind of um at first I was like wait a second that's not that's not what happened but I think it, he it's it's kind of um
1: it's filling in exciting. the blanks in a way
0: yeah for for him to add meaning to like very matter of fact writing in Genesis.
1: So I I got I got a I got a, another question for Maya. Go ahead. Do you want the personal one or do you want the more abstract question?
0: Give me both.
1: Uh, so I guess to prelude the question so that the listeners uh understand what we're talking about is uh, <clears throat> and I think the same in the expector- expectoration, he talks about two different nights, uh, the night of infinite resignation and the night of faith. And the main difference between uh, the night of infinite resignation and the night of faith is that uh, each, each night has one sole purpose in their life, one sole thing that they want to achieve in their lifetime. And Kierkegaard gives the example of a prince who, who's in love with a princess. And, The Knight of Infinite Resignation, if it was unable, if he was unable to marry the princess, then he would infinitely resign her. That he'd know in the next life, in heaven, in the eternal consciousness of whatever comes after this life, that he would get her. But not in this human, in the flesh life, he would not be able to get her. And the Knight of Faith does the same exact thing, except through virtue of the absurd, of the irrational, just the impossible, he believes that he will get to marry the princess and love her just through faith alone, not not through any rational, anything that makes sense.
0: It's like manifestation. <laughs> I believe.
1: <laughs> My question to you, Maya, is uh, are, you, are you a knight of infinite resignation? Oh, are you a knight of faith or are you neither? Are you one of the people who watches these knights perform the dance from the sidelines?
0: Oh, wow. Um, I would say, like, it depends what, you know? um in that specific instance of like loving someone i don't think i have the i don't think i have say in um whether or not i can get whoever in this life or the next life because i do believe there is a next life for me um i am op- i try to be optimistic and <laughs> i know this isn't one of the options but i would say i'm a little bit of both because I see myself in the fact that I, I, I try to um, go after my, my dreams in this world, in this lifetime. And I will, like, all my actions are driven by some sort of goal I'm trying to achieve. So I have the faith to continue persevering and following a path to get me to my goals. Um, but I also know that not everything is possible. And it's okay to let go of some of those dreams and with the hope and also the assurance that some of them might happen in another life for me. But um, I don't think I'm entitled to anything I did not get in this life in the next life. Okay. Does that answer your question? (laughs) Yeah.
1: So I guess my next question would be, which isn't the bit more abstract one, but I guess my, my next question would be, so you don't have like because Kierkegaard talks about, uh, the aesthetic, and that they're they're kind of somebody who spreads themselves, spreads themselves thin over. They can do whatever they want. They don't have one goal, and that the the knights, the two knights that he talks about, do have like one pure value that they try to fulfill in life. And I guess what would you say is the value for you above all the other ones that you strive for, whether through faith or through infinite resignation.
0: Like, what is my ultimate, like, life goal? Uh,
1: kinda. Because that's that's sort of what he what he says the night of faith and infinite resignation is, is that they devote themselves to one thing.
0: Hmm. Well, honestly, um, I am, a lot of what I do is driven by, like, my religious belief, believe it or not. What I... called to do as a person that is a christian a christ follower is like part of what i my my mission is like um to spread knowledge of like god and like why i care so much and why it makes me happy because um i guess the point is i want everyone to be happy (laughs) like personally i feel um more fulfilled with having religion so um as a person that experiences great joy from that why wouldn't i want other people that i love to also experience this joy so i would say it is i guess technically my ultimate purpose
1: so um from what you just said to me it sounds more like you're less a knight of faith or a knight of infinite resignation you're more of like a I guess, maybe not exactly as he defines it, but you're more in the vein of, like, the tragic hero that he talks mm. about, because it seems like you're trying to bring it towards the universal, which is, which the way he uses it, or at least that I interpreted it, is, like, the kind of communal space of humanity, if that makes any sense, like, that we can understand. Because, like, he talks a lot about how, like, uh, nobody would be able to understand. Because he talks about, in the third problem, uh, that people won't be able to understand faith. It's unintelligible being in a direct relationship with God. You can't really fathom it through the universal, which is, I guess, which is literally, I think the way like everything is kind of communicated in a sense. So, so, so do you, yeah. Do you remember the, the original assertion that I said about the tragic hero? Okay.
0: Um, so as I was reading, I kept finding like stuff about the tragic hero and not the, Kierkegaard puts down the tragic hero but I felt myself being like oh I don't want to be a tragic hero like everybody else yeah (laughs) like um and then I I kind of found myself being like does it matter are we meant to be heroic and like like is it a and then I also was asking myself is it a bad thing to aspire to be heroic and part of me wanted to say no because this is what the author's condemning um but honestly if I have a heroic attitude, then that's just how I am, That's my nature. So I, I can't um, what's it called condemn how I how, what I believe in um, because no matter how much I work to undo, I think that'll just be how I am. So there's no use in, in feeling sorry about that. Um, but I don't think everyone is meant to be a tragic like or not necessarily a tragic hero but a, not everyone is meant to have a heroic outlook on life um which is fine because as we as we talked about in the last episode like it's fine for people to have different thought processes and be unique um so I, I think as much as i as much as I cringe at it I, I think I tend to have a heroic outlook and you can label me the tragic hero i think that's appropriate
1: i'll label you i'll label you the tragic hero all
0: right do you want to be labeled well actually
1: i i was actually when when i was reading i was like i i don't feel like any of these apply to me because as aforementioned i'm not i'm not really that religious so i don't really see myself as a knight of infinite significant infinite resignation because i don't think that after we die, there's anything left, and mm-hmm. I don't see myself as a knight of faith because, again, I don't believe in a big muscular hunk up in the sky throwing, <laughs> throwing his, his lengthy full when you describe him like him that. Like that, that I
0: don't that either. I don't either.
1: <laughs> well, if if God is perfect, then he's the sexiest person ever, you know. All right. Okay, <laughs> but okay, get, we're getting off point. But although I do think I see things through, like achieving them through virtue of the absurd. I don't necessarily do it because I have faith in a god more in just that more in the entropy of the universe. But then he comes to the uh comes to the uh uh where is it? the problem 3 and towards the end he talks about the kind of archetypal character of Faust. Mm-hmm. And he he labels Faust as a uh, a doubter. And I feel like if if I'm anything that I that that ca- that he categorizes i feel like i'm the doubter
0: you're the villain of the show
1: <laughs> well cuz well i'm not necess- he's not necessarily the villain because he says uh uh by keeping silent he saves the universal from succumbing to the same sorrow that he experiences you know uh, and i yeah. and i feel like if i'm anything i'm that
0: are you a silent doubter i th- i think
1: I am for the most part because, like, like instead of coming on this podcast and being like, "Oh, Maya, you believe in God?" That's cringe. Get get out of here. What? I guess you got to be edgy.
0: Yeah, I guess the atheism would be most aligned with um loud doubter or like vocal doubter.
1: <laughs> like, like I. But I, I wouldn't say you're
0: silent. I would just say maybe. But like, I don't want to.
1: If there's something if there's a reason that i don't believe in these things if i don't believe in god or christianity then i don't want to take what comfort people get away get from that like i don't i wouldn't i'd never try to convert excuse me i'd never try to convert anybody to out of their religion if it gives them comfort and i feel like that's into this kind of state that i'm in which is it's not bad like he says that that and I forget if it's in a relation to a doubter, but he says that the path that these people walk is at the same time, terrible yet great. Right. And I, I feel like I don't, if people are happy, I don't want to be like, Oh, you know, there's something greater or what there's something worse. You know, like I don't want, I don't want to be the reason that anybody questions their faith.
0: Yeah. I, I'm on, on with you on that, which is why, um, when I meet people that have very strong belief in their in a different religion than mine, yeah. I am pretty um, hands off when it comes to expressing um, my religion. Like I will talk about my religion, but I won't be with the intent of changing their mind. Yeah. Because as a as a person with religious beliefs, like I have we have like that mutual understanding where it's like I have a strong belief in my religion. And I know that you respect my religion enough to not, um, I guess, meddle. So I would also express that same respect.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I guess that's that's how I would put it. Um, it's kind of hard to label yourself because you're not necessarily the intended audience. Say this, say you were reading this fresh off the press. Um, what, in like the eight, 18th Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, a say, say you're reading it. peasant
1: boy it. in Denmark.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, and you're a silent doubter, or whatever. You're. I wouldn't even say you're a silent doubter, but if you had to label yourself, that's the closest thing. Um, I'm not sure that um, the author really writes to the silent doubters.
1: So one thing that I really liked like about at least Fear and Trembling is that. yes it's a christian i guess philosophical text it deals almost explicitly with christian themes and christian uh stories and ideals but i don't think he's necessarily pushing his beliefs onto whoever reads it i think like at the end of each of the problems he says like oh uh where is it
0: like he does a, kind of like. Um, he says like himself. so. Either
1: there is a paradox that the individual stands in absolute relation to the to the absolute, or Abraham is lost. Or, right. He doesn't say, "Oh, so I'm right." There's always this kind of lingering ability for the individual who's reading it to make up for their mind what he says. He's just putting forth his ideas, and he lets the reader yeah. reader, I guess, decide whether or not Abraham is a martyr or a madman. I guess.
0: Yeah. It's like he's a, a waiter at a fancy restaurant with a bunch of, like, with a tasting menu. And he's like, huh? You like this one? I know it looks weird, but try it! <laughs> uh,
1: so, do you want me to ask the other question I I had, the more abstract one?
0: Oh, that was the, okay. <laughs> I,
1: I haven't asked that one
0: yet. Okay, go for it.
1: So, throughout the uh, uh, book, he, he says that Abraham's the father of faith, and he you know, he presents his reasons why that he should be considered that and not a murderer. And I guess one of the questions I had while reading it is, I mean, really, what benefit is there to being the father of faith? Because he says that he's never seen a knight of faith ever in his life, and that most people in his day and age try to go beyond faith, they don't accept it for what it is. So it seems, it seemed to me almost like, uh, Abraham was a, was the father of a meaningless cause because nobody has kind of the same faith he has. Sure, he's an ideal that people try to live up to, but again, in the thing that I brought up earlier with the priest talking to the guy, people don't really have a deep understanding of it. They take a surface level, level I guess, survey of the story of Abraham because the idea that he'd be actually genuinely willing to kill his son for God is harrowing, I guess. So I guess, I guess, the I guess the question would be, is it really worth it for Abraham to be the father of faith if there's not much faith in the society that he's in? And I guess as an extension, we're in.
0: Well, I guess to that, I would ask, um, Oh, I have a really terrible analogy. Okay. Say you're in a candy store. Somebody's stealing the Snickers <laughs> and um, they're going to get away with it. There's no cameras. No one's going to really care because this, this candy store is about to go out of business anyways. So like, do you do the heroic thing, which is say, hey, that's bad. That's wrong. There's like a lot to uphold. Or do you let it happen because it doesn't matter because no one's watching? And I I guess it's, it's, um, it's more about, um, I guess your character. And Abraham is, is, um, he, well, first of all, he didn't know that he was going to, A, be the father of the cause, and then B, that no one would follow. Didn't
1: he, didn't he know that, though? Isn't that what he was promised?
0: Well, later, yeah. But, um, well, he was promised to be the father of many nations.
1: Right, but...
0: He wasn't really given a responsibility.
1: Okay, I thought he was. I from what I remember when I had to read Genesis, it was like he was God's chosen one. Like you know, he says in the book, God's elect, and I thought that was uh, uh, like the promises, promises of him, like breeding forth, uh, like oh. the blessed line was before that, and that's why like he had to have faith that he would have Isaac in the first place because him and Sarah uh. were both. I hands. guess I
0: guess <laughs> I guess it's like I guess father could be metaphorical too. okay. anyways, we're both right. Um, <laughs> but I think he didn't so if even if he did know that that's that was going to be, he was promised that people would follow suit. So like he almost had this obligation to do the right thing, but also even if no one was watching and there was no lineage, why? Why should we um, question Abraham just trying to do the right thing?
1: The right thing from the ethical point of view, or from the religious point of view?
0: Um, I guess the religious what he deems is the religious, like the with what, what he deems is the right thing to do. Okay. And if, in his perspective, in his education, and all he is aware of, if he's doing the absolute right thing, to him. Then, like, are we to question?
1: Yeah, I I just wanted to make that distinction because uh, he again he mentions a lot in the book like if we were to look at this story ethically, then Abraham is just a murderer who tried to kill his son. But if you look at it religiously, which uh, I guess we should define what talk say what Kierkegaard defines the religious as, which is uh, I guess he has says that there's like three three types of people that people can be there can be the aesthetic which is somebody who kind of just does things for themselves for themselves for that reason uh there's the ethic who does things i for like kind of the greater nature like the commune the universal and then there's the religious which kierkegaard defines as uh the individual being higher than uh the universal by being an absolute relation to the absolute which the absolute in this instance is god So the whole paradox, or not the paradox, so the the religious is basically the aesthetic, but not for your own sake, for the sake of being an absolute relation to the absolute. I almost fell out of my seat again.
0: Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I I remembered the word I was thinking of. Um, It's Abraham is being um, like in that religious realm. He's upholding his integrity. He's doing what he says he's going to do. Yes even if he looks like a murderer in the under the ethical scope. Are we to look at the ethical like and versus religious versus aesthetic from our perspective knowing like having foresight and stuff or are we to look at it in his perspective because to Abraham maybe the ethical and religious are the same thing? Because we know that God spared Isaac but he doesn't know that
1: that's the whole point of his faith is that he th- he th- he knew or he thought that even though he had to sacrifice Isaac he would still have Isaac in this life that's what makes him the father of faith not not the fact that he like doubted not the fact that he was willing to kill kill Isaac for sacrifice Isaac for God it was the fact that he in his heart knew that Isaac was going to continue to be with him in this life, even though God said to sacrifice him. It's not that uh he it's not that God like sprung on him the uh that he was saving Isaac, that the ram happened to be on the mountain Mount, what is it, Mount Moriah?
0: Mount Moriah, yes.
1: It it the whole point of him being the father of faith is because he had faith that he would continue to live with Isaac, even if like he did bring down the knife and kill him. Like he says that he would have he had faith that God would have resurrected him right after.
0: Oh. Wow. (laughs) That is, that is, that is some faith. I think that's why we have such a hard time understanding Abraham. Because who acts like that? Who is like that?
1: (laughs) Yeah, like he says that there's, there's no knights of faith in the world, at least when he was writing it.
0: Just because, like, how often did Kierkegaard get out? You know, did he get the chance to travel the world? Do you know? Because who is he to say that there are no knights if he has not met everyone in this world?
1: Uh, I I know that he walked around Denmark a lot. Like he, he would walk the streets and that people would be like, yo, there's that, that, that floppy Danish guy.
0: That man that called me unfaithful.
1: Yeah. I'm thinking about what you're saying that how he he doesn't know if he would have met them and in the uh, expectoration, he says that if he did meet one they'd appear just like your average person
0: Mm -hmm.
1: so I guess the question would be how do you know when somebody is a knight of faith versus when they're just an aesthetic person who's doing things for their own sake and not for the sake of having faith
0: you wouldn't know because that's you can't get in their head
1: or the question is because he says that the knight of faith only has one goal in their life so would you be able to tell that they're the knight of the faith by their goal that they were like oh yeah it's my goal to uh uh i i guess for the sake of the argument being like oh yeah my goal is to be like oh yeah i want my goal is to be king of the world and i have absolute faith that i'll do it You know, like, would they have something, a conviction that sets them apart from the aesthetic who would be able to flip-flop what their values are at any given time?
0: Hmm. I'm not sure you, I don't know, because, yeah, no one, not no one, but I think it's very rare for someone to maintain the same standing in life and, like, in in terms of like their goals, their perspective. As you grow, you you start to maybe morph what you believe in or your goals change, and that's normal. So I think I don't think anyone is like specifically set on something for all all of their life. I think that's more rare.
1: But I think that's what makes that distinguishment is that a, the knight of faith would only have one thing that they'd set their their life to. Like he says, Abraham's is uh, uh, like being the father of Isaac that, you know, that's like his main thing. And that's why he had such faith in the fact that even if he did sacrifice Isaac, he would still be able to have him in this life. Mm. You, you want to move on to a different question, Maya, or you want to keep keep digging the ground here?
0: I, I don't know. I'm, I was thinking it would be nice to have some context. Like the different fictionalized perspectives of
1: yeah, sure. I would like to put forth one more question, though. I guess yeah. I, and I don't know if it's something that uh, popped popped into popped into your d- noodle while while you were reading, but uh, well, first of all, Kierkegaard he didn't write this under his own name. He wrote it under the pseudonym. I think it's like Johannes de Silentio. Yes. And uh, I guess my question is, throughout the uh the whole book he claims to not be a knight of faith he claims to i don't even know if he claims to be knight of infinite resignation but he claims to not have real and complete faith so how trustworthy really is this entire treatise if he doesn't if he can't experience what he's talking about so assuredly
0: yeah okay so when i was emailing this teacher i was saying like there's so much narrator unreliability just like yeah i don't know i was at the time i was writing this email i was like frustrated (laughs) i was like who is he to come in here and say this about abraham and like abraham's just trying his best and like all these all these things i was like appalled you know um just as he probably intended for when people, when the Danish people would be reading it, they'd be like, "Oh, he said what about me?" Like I, I had, I listed the same response. Um, Abraham's not perfect by any means, but he's going after someone that is like unattainable. Like no one else is a knight in his eyes. Yeah. So I was almost like, if Abraham's not good enough, what does that mean, me? Yeah. I I tend to admire Abraham's faith, just like the author does but um i i wonder if the pseudonym was more so for his own protection though because if he was well known the the church could have tried to remove him
1: so one thing i do know about kierkegaard is that some of his pseudonyms don't mean anything cuz he writes under uh like i think almost all his major works are under a pseudonym and i know that some of them mean something and i think johannes Silentio does mean something. It means, like, John of the Silent. Yeah, I, I I, think it is significant that it's under pseudonym and not under Soren Kierkegaard. You got any ideas about that, Maya? Aside from the um, church attacking him?
0: <laughs> no, honestly, I think that's it. Like, that's, that's the only one that comes to mind because when I think about when I learned about the Enlightenment and how um, the first few people to... Kind of come out and be like hey I think something else like <laughs> they were severely ridiculed or punished
1: well I feel like I've been a uh, kind of had my hand on the wheel for most of this uh podcast episode so far so is there anything that that I guess you'd like to ask me or that that you'd like to dig deeper into
0: oh okay I wanted to get into like the different um alternate fictionalized avenues For Abraham and Isaac's story.
1: And the prelude?
0: Yes. I'm going to read Genesis 22 so that there's context because I went in cold. I was reading it and I had not read this specific section. Yes. In a really long time. Um... He cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, "Stay here with the donkey. I, I and the boy will go over to the, go go over there and worship and come again to you." And Abraham took the wood off of the burnt offering and laid it laid it on Isaac his son. And he took his hand, the fire and his and the knife, and they went off both of them together. And Isaac said to his father. Abraham, my father. He said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar. On top of the wood, then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from the heaven and said, uh, "Abraham, Abraham!" He said, "Here I am." <laughs> he said, "Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me." And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose, arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. So what I'm not reading is um, the next few lines is his lineage. So there's a few things I want to pull from this. So there's a lot of symbolism. Um, I Abraham says, here I am three times, I believe. He is being... Called two, three times. Three is a very special number in the Bible because Holy Trinity. That too, there's so much symbolism. It took three days to ride to Mount Moriah. Peter denies Jesus three times. There is, on the third day, he rose. There's just so much to do with three.
1: Is it like actual symbolism or is it just like it just so happens that it's three and that people read it, read into it, or is it like meant to be symbolic?
0: Um, I would say it's intentional. The amount of times it's the number three is listed, I would say it's intentional. Um, okay. At the end, his um, his blessing that God announces to him. So he will bless. God is promising to bless Abraham, and he will multiply his offspring as the stars in the heaven and the sand and the sea. So the significance of Isaac and the significance of. Um, a lineage is the fact that abraham and sarah could not have children yes for 70 years they were married and then when they were 99 they had their child isaac something like that
1: can you have like a child with uh was Concubine. it Hagar? <laughs> yeah wasn't sarah know. like yo I'll, I'll let you hit it abraham you you go right ahead yeah,
0: just yeah but he was not i guess not satisfied i don't know um <laughs> But
1: <laughs> my man ain't have sex in 70 years and he ain't satisfied shut the hell up Abraham. <laughs> i the
0: i think that the significance of isaac is because it took so long for isaac to arrive and what 90 year old has a kid isaac was special yeah <laughs> <laughs> but there was no way that that was actually going to happen but it did happen by god's faith so Isaac is special, which is why it makes no sense that Abraham would just sacrifice his son, Yeah, which is um, the absurdity that Kierkegaard likes to play with. Um, Abraham's a little late to the game, only has like a kid and a half. The, the idea that God will multiply his, his offspring is, tre- is tremendous because he thinks, oh, I'm only going to get this one kid. Now he's promised to be, like, this great father of a nation. It's almost like his patience is rewarded.
1: Yeah, it's like he had to have faith that he would actually have Isaac, just in the same way he would have to have faith that even though he had to sacrifice him, he would still get him back. It's, uh, like, where where does, Kierkegaard says something like that in the, uh, like, his eulogy to Abraham, where he's praising Abraham. It's the part where he says that glorious treasure, which was just as old as faith in Abraham's heart, many many years older than Isaac, the fruit of Abraham's life, sanctified by prayers, matured in conflict, the blessing upon Abraham's lips. This fruit was now to be plucked prematurely and remained without significance.
0: Yeah. So it it adds so much more meaning, so much more like um, fuel to the fire. Yeah. Um. Uh. Another thing, like if if you were to read on the part I did not read. Um, The rest of Genesis 22, there is just a list of names. This person is the father of this person, and if you've read the Old Testament, it's everywhere. So the significance of that, and the reason why that happens so much, is because Abraham, if you follow, the the Bible tends to follow this lineage of Abraham, and it is directly related to Jesus.
1: Okay, I was about to ask that.
0: Yeah, so the twists and turns of the bible eventually lead up to jesus which is why it's so important because if isaac was not spared then there would you know what i mean there would be no jesus if isaac was not spared the reason i read it is because we were saying like it's so bland <laughs> yeah like okay abraham's like here i am about to kill here my son here i am and then he the angels like yo stop it your son's fine he he's, he'll be spared there's a RAM. It's like so lackluster. And Kierkegaard is like, oh, well, let me give you an alternate ending. Let me let me roll up my sleeves and, and write some some fiction. Um, which at first I did not realize was fiction. So I was like, excuse me, that's wrong. Yeah. That's not what happened. <laughs> but um
1: his own interpretations of what could have possibly yes. happened.
0: So there's there's different scenarios. Um there's one where Abraham gets this monologue that we've been like yearning for, (laughs) where he's like expressing his distress and how he wants to kill Isaac and how he has to control himself and that it's all in his head. And then there's another one where Abraham does the right thing, but he does explain the difficulty in it. And then there's another version where, um, Abraham doesn't isn't honest with Isaac and he knows something Isaac doesn't and then there's the last one where Isaac um, walks away from faith so
1: I would like to read uh, part of the the first one because I think it's just like it's very emotionally palpable like it's very Uh. like I don't know it, it like you can feel the desperation But Abraham said to himself, I will not conceal from Isaac whether this course leads him. He stood still. He laid his hand upon the head of Isaac in benediction, and Isaac bowed to receive the blessing. And Abraham's face was fatherliness. His look was mild, his speech encouraging. But Isaac was unable to understand him. His soul could not be exalted. He embraced Abraham's knees. He fell at his feet imploringly. He begged for his young life, for the fair hope of his future. He called to mind the the joy in Abraham's house. He called to mind the sorrow and loneliness. Uh, and then I'm going to skip a little bit to the next part that I thought was emotionally palpable. Uh, it's Abraham's response to Isaac, where he says, uh, he seized Isaac by the throat, threw him to the ground and said, stupid boy, dost thou then suppose that I'm thy father? I'm an idolater. Dost thou suppose that this is God's bidding? No, it is my desire. And I just, I think it's so like, oh my God. Ooh. I was
0: like, excuse me.
1: Giving me chills. (laughs)
0: If you could rewrite history, which one do you prefer? Which one's most... Do you prefer the most dramatic one, which is I, Abraham being a murderer?
1: Uh, Of the four <laughs> options, I quite like the last one.
0: You feel like it's more realistic?
1: I think it is, in a sense, because it's not... Because it, the whole book looks at it through, like, Abraham's point of view, what he must have been experiencing. And I feel like this one and the first one are the ones that really just... Examine what Isaac would have felt.
0: Yeah, like you don't really get to hear much about what he felt in that moment. But I I remember I was talking to my mom about it, and I was like, "What do you think? Did I did I Isaac feel anything? Did Abraham feel anything? Like, because there's so much, so much is left to interpretation." That my mom was saying, like, "I don't think Isaac was old enough. Like, it doesn't really say his age, but." he didn't question but in the same sense abraham didn't question either but um there's just my mom my mom was saying like she didn't think isaac was old enough to really know what was happening which is why nothing was explained to him
1: so i mean it was also Kierkegaard says that he didn't explain it to him because he wouldn't have been able to understand because uh it's about like his faith is above the universal and because isaac I guess, didn't have the same scenario faith that Abraham had. He wouldn't be able to understand what, what he had to say. And my my other thing to that is, uh, if you look at, like, some of the art of, like, the binding of Isaac, it's brutal looking. And, like, yeah. like there's most of them, like, are, like, uh, there's one by Caravaggio where he has, like, the knife, like, right behind his head, and he's, like, pushing his head down and i changed my background to one of them because i really liked the painting and oh, it's like yeah you to, like
0: the you pain like, the paint had, without no, the teeth the
1: <laughs> and he like he put the cloth over I, uh, isaac's head and it's like his neck is like like he's pushing isaac's head down and he's like his neck is out and it's like the painting is at the exact moment when the angel stops abraham but
0: would you say that the um the art is more like that isaac is being like manipulated in that way because? Abraham's like, don't make me do it, God. Don't make me do it, God. And he's like, he's taking his time. Or would you say that um, the art is just like to make Abraham look evil?
1: Uh, I feel like the art is more to try to convey the, the visceral reality of what it must have actually been like.
0: For Abraham or for Isaac?
1: I think for both, because you can't have one without the other you know
0: very true it's been a pleasure talking to you and um talking about fear and trembling i i laughed i cried you know i was not expecting that um thank you for challenging me to read this
1: a- Anytime, any it's it's been real and it's been fun but it hasn't been real fun
0: oh <laughs> um well, thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Um, have a nice day.
1: Bye. Wear your seatbelt, everybody. Uh, do you want to hear a joke?
0: <laughs> give me, a, give me a Abraham joke.
1: Uh, it has to be about Abraham.
0: Ah, uh, duh. <laughs>
1: I don't have any Abraham jokes.
0: I can only consume jokes of the religious media format.
1: Um, what do you call a funny wheel?
0: Uh, what?
1: A satire. Ha 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 ha. Ha ha Okay. <laughs>